Today, we're chatting Messi's big contract leak and what does it mean for the player and for Barcelona, if the reported numbers are actually true. We also review Match Week 21 by digging into the Arsenal and Manchester United matchup, Chelsea's first win under Tuchel, and Liverpool's easy win over West Ham, as well as all the other notable results, quite a few upsets. We then wrap up the episode by previewing Match Week 22. We got some more midweek fixtures. This is the Two Touch Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Douglas, and as always, I'm joined by Tim Bones Bouts. This is episode 21. Let's get started. Okay, as always, we're going to jump into some match reviews. But before we do that, there was some big news this past weekend in the football world. Not not so much Premier League, but it was big news. Details of Lionel Messi's contract has been leaked. Why is this significant? Well, first of all, I didn't know his contract was a secret. And second of all... <laughs> <laughs> the reported contract was for four years. So, you know, normal time frame. I think that's, we see four, five, three-year contracts all the time. But it was for, I get, the number I got was €555,237,619, which is sorry, $673,919,105. Uh, that means he makes like 168 million or something like that a year. So to put it in perspective, I think the only, I think the, the reported biggest contract in soccer prior to that was like Ronaldo at like 60 mil. Yeah. So this is almost three times as much, which is absurd. It's a lot of money. (laughs) It's, it's so insane. So why is this big news? Well, because it, it got leaked and it's obviously, uh, insane amount that no one's ever heard of before but on top of that now Messi is and with I think the support of Barcelona are suing the newspaper the newspaper El Mundo that leaked this information because apparently only like four people had copies of the contract one being Messi one being Messi's dad one being the club one being like the football association that oversees the contracts maybe it was only four but basically somehow the numbers got out and people are pissed off about it also, to put it into perspective, someone else dropped a stat that like what he makes in a month is more than what a hockey player, like the highest paid hockey player makes an entire year, which is can help put that in perspective. So why is this also big news is that this is reported from a club that has 1.2 billion euros of debt. So how are they going to pay off this contract? I have no idea. They must be on like a 20 year payment plan. So this is coming from an interesting place where soccer contracts are kind of black boxes. You know, you've got transfers, transfer fees, and that's usually what the public sees, and it's absurd fees. That's um, what we saw a couple of years ago with Neymar, and I think it was a 225 million euro transfer fee. But then on top of that, personal terms have to be agreed. Oftentimes, you don't know what the personal terms are until something ridiculous happens. So, for instance, here's my Bayern plug of the day. I didn't um, take long. 
yeah. David David Alba is leaving the club because he thinks that he's worth 20 million euros a year. Uh, certainly, when you compare that to 168, that seems pretty low. But like a bargain. <laughs> yeah, but for Bayern, the most expensive player on the team is Manuel Neuer, the the best goalkeeper in the world, mm. undeniably. Mm. Um, then I think maybe Thomas Muller and Robert Lewandowski. Those are three incredibly talented and world-class players. Not not to say that David Alba is is not that type of player, but for a defender, probably not. But that was outrage that David Alba was asking for $20 million. Now we're I looking love, at 168 I love how, how the topic is messy, and you completely hijack it just to talk about Bayern players. And and I think that it, well yeah that that you knew that was going to happen regardless I, I think it's only an issue because of COVID because of the amount of debt the 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 team or the franchise franchise is carrying but also because they haven't really been successful this year the past couple of transfer windows there's been a lot of speculation that Messi wants to leave he doesn't like Barcelona anymore he doesn't trust management he doesn't trust uh, the board. And I think that was just kind of fueling the fire. Like, oh, he wants to leave. He doesn't trust us. He's not getting what he wants. But in reality, he's getting $168 million a year. And in a COVID environment, when people are really struggling, it obviously looks greedy. But you also look at it like, if Barcelona didn't have Messi, what the fuck would would they be? Yeah. How how would they be? I don't know. Um, I don't know if... like I, I get what you're saying. Like, recent transfer windows, there's been speculation, especially last summer. But this is like a, he's basically, this is the end of his four-year contract. So yeah. it's its done at the end of this season. So when he signed that, he was on good terms with Barcelona. True, true. Um, but it, it's interesting. So other things to, to know about the, the financial situation with Barcelona is that they actually already had to delay payments of their players. Uh, so they get paid twice a year. Uh, their salary gets basically two installments. So once in January, once in July, they had to delay the January payment because they didn't have the funds to actually pay their players. And this is all because of COVID. Basically, they're a club that depends on the revenue from in-stadium, from the, the, the live games, more than pretty much any other big club out there. They're not very diversified. It's a tourist destination. People come from all over the world yeah. to watch games at Barcelona. They estimated make uh, they're estimated to make 320 million a year and uh, 320 million euros a year from revenue generated during a game. So ticket sales, concessions, the sponsorships that they can charge for live games. And yeah, basically all of that's gone right now. And just to dovetail on that, we can as as soccer fans, Trevor and I confirm that because when I was living in Cyprus in 2016, I visited Trevor for th- no, it was Easter, and decided that I was going to buy tickets for us to go watch Barcelona play. I think Sociedad. Yeah, and he was, I think so, I paid. <laughs> small I, detail. He came to visit me while I lived in Barcelona. Not not in May. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Sorry. Great story. I think I paid here. around two hundred euros for um, each ticket. And we were sitting behind a pillar, and we we literally, if there was a ball in the air, we couldn't see it. the The, the stands were overhanging, and therefore we just couldn't see it. We were also wildly hungover, so that kind of played into our, 
our level of distaste of actually like focusing on the game. But I mean, they were having no issues in generating revenue from ticket sales. All right. Well, I don't know if we have anything else to add to this, but it is just an absurd story. And if it's true, I mean, good, good for Messi. Okay. So, and also Barcelona is just absolutely screwed. Like they need the pandemic to end now because yesterday, (laughs) because they're going to get to the point where they're gonna have to start selling their players. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't know how the finances work at a club, but that just seems like an obvious knee jerk reaction and start saying that they need to sell their players. So, and what's funny is they they used to be so good at, at, um, developing talent in La Masia and now they can't get anybody I guess Ansu Fati and Conrad De La Fuente are, are American hope but they haven't been able to produce a true superstar in so long that mm. they may have to go back to relying on their academy and they just haven't invested in it as they did when they were bringing up the Iniestas the Javis the 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 Messies yeah okay moving on one other piece of news that popped up on my radar this morning that I'm just going to make a point to bring up because it pisses me off. But I guess basically it supports an argument I made last episode. So the PGMOL, what does that stand for? I have no idea, but it's the overarching refereeing group of the Premier League. And they came out stating this morning that in the match against Sheffield, Manchester United's match against Sheffield United, that the first goal that Sheffield United scored should not have counted, and Martial's goal should have counted. So what does that mean? Well, that means I can be cranky, and it's justified that United (laughs) actually should have won 2-1 instead of losing 2-1. And what does this mean for everything else? I think people should be mad about this, not because they want Manchester United to win, but it's putting position, it's putting Manchester City in the position to absolutely run away with a title if they keep doing what they're doing. I, I, Liverpool can't make up the ground. Manchester United, at best, was going to try to keep pace, um, but like City's getting to the point where they might just run away with the title. I don't know if they do, but yeah. they're, they have a big opportunity, so that's kind of annoying. So what, what I have issue with um, is that this body came out with the ruling that, oh, yeah, that shouldn't have counted, this should have counted, because the game is over. What are they going to do about it? It's not like they're going to reward United points. Like, let, let, let's just move on and not have to dwell on this. So them saying, oh, we got it wrong, it's like, fuck you. Like, wh- what is your purpose? Like, if well, you can't make I, this call. I kind of disagree with you. I mean, they do the same thing in the NBA, like the – the five out of camera it's called it's like the the last two minute report or whatever where everything is reviewed by the refs but I, it's i think it's to hold the referees accountable and so that yeah but i i think re, re, i think putting that out into the public is just fueling the fire that var sucks and that refereeing has been pretty shoddy the past couple of years at the very least if not longer I, and I hate, I hate the fact that they do this in the NBA, too, or any other sport, or in the NFL. I think it's bullshit. Like, if they come out and say, oh, we should have made this call differently, that was an incorrect call, it's like, okay, so what are you doing for me now? What, what does that do other than make me angry? Yeah, fair point. Okay, so let's jump into the match review now. First match that we're going to be touching on is the Arsenal versus Manchester United. This was probably the the big marquee matchup on paper going into the weekend. So what happened? The result and a very exciting, I'm definitely being sarcastic, zero, zero draw goals. There were no goals, obviously. So 
Let me just give you some underlying stats to give you some picture of what the match was like. Possession was about even, slightly skewed towards Manchester United. Arsenal had more shots, 17 to 14, and they had the same amount of shots on goal with three, e- three each. And expected goals were in favor for Manchester United with 1.4 to 0.8. So I think overall, trying to be as objective as possible watching this match, if you had had to pick a team to win, it goes towards Manchester United, mainly because they had the best opportunity of the match that got absolutely squandered. But a draw overall is fair, and this is actually very surprising and, as a Manchester United fan, very disappointing, considering that Arsenal's two best players, Saka and Tierney, didn't play, and their best and most proven, even though not this season so far, goal scorer, Aubameyang, didn't play. So what the hell, Manchester United? What are you doing? Uh, Missed opportunity. So in a possible six points last week, Manchester United got one, and that's going against Sheffield United and... No offense to Arsenal. They're obviously playing much better now, but they've been overall a shit team this year. It's not looking good for United. Uh, yeah, that is a tough week. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. What, what were your thoughts, Bones? I was... I mean, I'm not an Arsenal fan, but I was pleasantly surprised in, in how they performed. I it, They at least made it entertaining. Um, I was texting one of my buddies who's an Arsenal fan... And he was like, yeah, you know, uh, not much going on, but at least Pepe had a pulse, which is nice. I thought that I haven't seen a lot of the Arsenal matches, but this was probably the best I've seen Pepe play for them. He, he was he was dangerous going down the right side, and that's, yeah. I think, primarily where they wanted to attack. They tried to a little bit on the left, but Aaron Wambasaka was shutting down Martinelli pretty easily in the first half. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, Pepe like you said, had a pulse, which was pretty surprising and yeah, poor timing and, and, for me. Yeah. Uh, honestly, one of the better performances I can remember of Arsenal, I thought that I thought it was great that Arteta didn't just jump headfirst into automatically infusing Odegaard into the starting lineup and then kind of wrecking the chemistry of uh, Smith Rowe with the you know other attacking midfielders slash forwards um, and just that younger contingent. I thought Smith Rowe played really well, but I also liked kind of the steadying performance that Odegaard had when he came on and how he seemed to be meshing with um, some of the other outfield players. I don't know what this necessarily means for Arsenal. I think that this was a pro- they were probably happy with the result. I can't say the same for United. I, I mean, they can't hit the goal ever. They They just need to be better in front of goal. And, and we've been saying this for a long time now and I don't know what what they do to improve there is talk about Rashford taking target practice or you know being forced to take target practice midweek last week after such a Sheffield. funny way to put it uh he basically the, the the coaching staff is concerned that he's becoming predictable in front of net and I think actually to your credit you mentioned this quite a bit of uh, quite a while ago that when he gets in front of net, he's, he can be very deadly, but he has one one train of thought, and it's smash the ball past the keeper. There's never finesse. There's, I mean, he does aim, but it's it's always let's blast it. And you know, it's interesting because it's it doesn't seem like his concern is or his issue is um, 
when when a player obviously wants to just crush the ball every time, it's usually like, okay, well, this is going to turn into a field goal. But it's never that. It's more of just either he hits it right at the goalie or he misses it just a little bit wide. So they want him yeah. to work on, obviously, different types of finishes. And the one last thing I'll say is it, it, it's something that, that should inspire some confidence for Arsenal fans. Thomas Partey, who could potentially – be considered their best player, although he hasn't played much this year because of injury. He had one of the worst games I've seen him play, uh, whether it's at Atletico or with Arsenal. So you imagine when he starts really going, how their their team could could look and how they could play. And I, I think that's that is inspiring confidence that they may be turning a corner and, and making a legitimate push for maybe a European spot. I, I was a huge skeptic, but it's possible. Yeah, it's definitely possible, especially given how drunk this year is. It's just people are dropping points left and right. We'll get to that in a little bit. But I think I kind of figured out what's wrong with Manchester United right now. You know, obviously this, this kind of haunts me. It's been a, a bad week. But I think our issue is what Ole – tries to do is he says all right i have like 11 12 13 best players and those are the be- those are the players that are going to get on the pitch and i'm going to do my job to make them fit into this puzzle the problem is the pieces just aren't quite perfect yet so there's a ton of talent and a ton of ability and that's why they can either look amazing or look pretty me- mediocre but still manage to squeak out those ugly wins i think the two biggest issues are one, obviously, we don't have a right wing. So what often happens is Rashford gets pushed to the right wing, and he is significantly less productive on the right than he is on the left. And then another thing is Paul Pogba can't – Ole doesn't trust him playing as a double pivot with any of our other defensive midfielders right now. And I think that might be because of – nervousness around our back line and also just we don't have a a really we don't have a class defensive midfielder so what happens is if we play a somewhat decent attacking team like arsenal or anyone else that we'd have respect for we have to play mctominay and fred as the two double pivots and then pogba actually plays in the front three then but he has to play on the left side so then that pushes Rashford over to the right. So we have two of our best players out of position at that point. So this is becoming an issue, at least in my head. That's how I see it playing out. So th- that clearly needs to be where they address this offseason. It's, it's obviously there's the biggest puzzle piece is what, what, what's going to happen with, or I guess the biggest domino is what's going to happen with Pogba. Like if he stays, then great. Let's get a, a, a defensive midfielder that can play as a single pivot and then boom, Pogba can stay in a deep-lying midfield role. If he goes, then just assess our midfield. Are we happy with Donny van der Beek taking his spot? And then we need a right winger so badly. I watch any other team that has a right winger that's left-footed, and it just looks like such a luxury to me. Like watching West Ham with Bowen even, like Bowen is like if you just in a vacuum put him next to Martial, he's nowhere near as talented as Martial. But I'd rather have Bowen starting for us than Martial at this point. And it just shows how desperate we are for, like, that puzzle piece to fit in the right wing. Yeah. Yowza. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Um, okay. So, 
quickly wrap it up. I think we, we touched on it, these two players, but uh, I was super impressed by Pepe. Obviously, he's got a long way to go to justify his price tag, and I think most Arsenal fans are are just – there's no coming back from how poor he's been. And then uh, Aaron Wan-Bissaka was fantastic, fantastic defensively. He basically locked down that the right side, United's right side, but they uh, he also went forward a ton, which he never does. And as awkward as he looked doing it, he did pretty well. So I was impressed by both of those, those players in this match. Next match, Chelsea versus Burnley. The second match under Tuchel's reign. Result, 2-0 Chelsea. I actually thought this was a pretty decent win for them, considering Burnley's been in surprisingly good form with two upset wins. Uh, first over Liverpool at Anfield and then over Aston Villa, a very informed quality team in Aston Villa. So I thought they had a, a chance of at least drawing here, but Chelsea looks great. So goals came from Aspilicueta in the 40th minute. He had a nice overlap and rocket to the top shelf. It was assisted by Hudson Odoi. And then Marcus Alonso in the 84th received a ball from our boy Christian Pulisic at the near post. He chested it, then kneed it, gave a little volley, and then shot it into the top, right into the roof of the goal. It was actually an unreal finish, uh, especially yeah. from a wing back. So, yeah, uh, I guess my question is, Aspilicueta and Marcos Alonso are the two goal scorers for this match. Why does it feel like 2017? <laughs> so this was the second match under Tuchel, and he rolled out a sort of like a 3-4-2-1 formation again. Uh, same, same formation as the first time around. He kept hudson Adoy in as a right wing back. He subbed out Chilwell for Marcos Alonso as a left wing back. And then last match, in that kind of front three sort of triangle, he started in the last match. He started Giroud, Havertz, and Ziyech as the the like the two one. And in this match, he started Tammy Abraham, Mason Mount, and uh, Werner. So definitely just testing out and see what his attacking options are. And this match was much better offensively. Mm-hmm. Chelsea had nineteen shots, and eight of them were on goal. So that is excellent. Bones, what were your thoughts? I really like. Um, I liked how they started playing with each other. I think this was the most dominant and cohesive performance Chelsea have had uh, in quite some time. I thought even Timo Werner probably looked the best he has in in, in months, and maybe even since he he came to, to Chelsea and understanding he didn't score, he was at least putting solid shots on goal and was looking deadly again. He was quick he was looking to get in behind the defense the other things that i thought of i'm actually really coming around to cho as a right wing back it's not something that i i thought that i would ever see and so it's maybe i'm still kind of in the honeymoon phase of wow this is kind of intriguing but i actually think he's playing really well at the position and i mentioned it last episode kind of like how conte was um deploying Victor Moses a number of years ago, which worked to their benefit um, in, I guess, their last time in winning the Premier League. I also have, have said this multiple times throughout the summer. Obviously, Chelsea spent a ton of money, and I never thought that left 
wing back or left back was really where they needed to spend. As far as a an offensive left wing back, I, I think that Marcus Alonso is almost second to none. He's done incredibly well over his his time with Chelsea. Moving forward, it's just his defensively that has has been a bit of an issue. But in this formation, it doesn't really make a difference. And I also think that Ben Chilwell, since bringing him aboard, maybe he's a little bit better defensively, but he has not been all that great offensively. And I think that that's something that they've missed greatly without uh, with having not played Marcus Alonso. And when Ben Chilwell isn't playing, they've generally been playing Emerson, who has never really impressed for Chelsea in the past. I just think that Tuchel, even though clearly he, he's not – you know, choosing a specific starting 11. Uh, he's still trying to feel everybody out. He's at least trying new things that Lampard wasn't going to ever try. And I think certain strengths of the squad are coming out in some of the different formations he's rolled out. And I, I think this is a great shakeup of, of the squad, give them a little bit more energy and at least try something new because they were obviously in a huge rut before. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the uh, the wing back position for Hudson Odoi is really interesting, and obviously it's it's been great for him in the, the two matches he's he's played it. Uh, so he had an assist in this in this match. He probably should have had another one. He almost had a goal, which you know had a deflection, but he was very dangerous. And it's mm-hmm. it's interesting because you know when a team lines up and starts a, a game there, and you talk about wing backs, you very you, you're thinking you know defense is in their mind but they do push forward. The thing is these wingbacks under Tuchel and it's only a two game sample. So we'll see. But what I've noticed is that they are insanely aggressive and they're almost in the front line with the, the, the lead striker. So there were multiple times that it was, it became a front <laughs> front three of Marcus yeah. Alonso, Tammy Abraham and Hudson Odoi, and they were just so aggressive, but they were also expected to track back. So, Something I was thinking about once this became pretty clear, it it requires these wing backs to run an insane amount. And mm-hmm. almost to do that for a full 90, you need to have stamina like a Leeds player, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> so social media was blowing up about Chilwell getting benched, Alonzo coming in out of the cold and playing phenomenally. And everyone's saying Chilwell's a boss, blah, 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 all this. I don't know if that's true. And I don't, I'm not, I think Tuchel's still kicking the tires on everything. But if this is how he wants to play, I think he needs to rely on two wingbacks at each position to be able to be ready at any gave, given notice. I, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if the starting times start to split. And then also I wouldn't be surprised if often these wingbacks get subbed off, you know, in like the 70th or 80, 80th minute because they're sprinting the entire time. So um, yeah. I think I think and, even if Alonso plays his way to being the number one, I think Chilwell is going to be playing a ton regardless. And, and to that point, there was a report that, oh, given that Marcus Alonso has kind of come out from the cold, they obviously invested heavily in Ben Chilwell. Do you think that there's going they're going to loan out Emerson? And Tuchel was like, no, we need all of our – are left and right backs for the rest of the season for that exact purpose. They're going to be running a fucking ton. 
I just think that this this system is set up for Marcus Alonso. And I mean, he has thrived in those systems in the past. He was never a left back. He Marcus Alonso was never going to be a left back. It just didn't suit him. He was always going to be a left wing back. That's how he in the position that he thrived in the past. And so in Lampard's system, it just didn't fit him. I can understand why he was out in the cold. But if Tuchel is in fact going to play this system, he's probably I I am projecting that he's going to get the lion's share of the minutes because he's better offensively. With that said, and to your point, they're going to be running a fucking ton. So I think that they are while they're trying to kind of cut some dead weight, they're going to be holding on for dear life up until the end of the season. So they aren't sending out Emerson on, on loan. Um, and the, the one other comment I have, and while I think that this right wing back position for CHO is, is a great move from a Chelsea perspective, I'm kind of bummed from a Bayern perspective because he was not getting any playtime. Um, or not getting enough for what he was looking to get. And Bayern were gonna try again. Dude, you're such a dreamer. To... No, they're not gonna they're not gonna sell to Bayern. You're such a dreamer. <laughs> Regardless, if if he becomes a right wing back and plays every game, there's no way Tuchel tries to sell him. No. And I Okay. All right. Well I'll I'll go fuck myself because you're not gonna let me finish because you don't like Bayern. You don't like me talking about farmers leagues or whatever. But I'm a little bummed because I was actually <laughs> confident that they were going to sign him this summer. Yeah, clearly you were. You were also you were also confident that they were going to keep uh, Alaba. So you know, let's see how that goes. All right. Honestly, we've just spent so much time talking about wingbacks that we don't really have much time to talk about anything else in this match. <laughs> but other note, I would say is that despite a good first half. They are clearly much better than being Chelsea in the second half. And the only major change between the first and second half was actually Pulisic got subbed on and their attack became legitimately dangerous then. And again, it's not just because we're two Americans trying to, you know, pump up the, uh, the American wave in in European soccer, but he, he actually was their best player and he had an assist, although, Alonso did all the the hard work on that one, and but he could have had multiple assists. He could he should have had a goal. Yep. Uh, he's uh, I I fully expect him to be the starter in that sort of like the two positions that sit behind the lone striker. But there's a lot of competition there, so we'll see how that unfolds. That, that's something we'll probably get into next time we talk about Chelsea. It's just they have they basically went from three positions that they had about five or six players competing for down to two positions where five or six players are competing for. So there's going to be a bit of a log jam there. It's going to be interesting to see how Tuchel handles that situation. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break just to ask of a favor. If you haven't already, could you please consider subscribing to this podcast? It would do us a lot of good, and you know we want to... And you a lot of good, to be honest. Yeah, you, the listeners, I mean... How are you going to stay informed? Well, you can by listening to Two Touch two times a week. If you're listening on Apple, give it a a rating and a review. And if you're on Spotify, a follow. And then all other platforms, a simple subscribe would work. Next up on the match review, we're talking West Ham versus Liverpool. The result of this match was 3-1 to Liverpool. Goals 
we got to talk about the goals in this match because there were some pretty ones. We'll start with Mohamed Salah with a fantastic finish inside the box. He was in his normal right side position and he had a nice little, he danced a little bit in front of a couple defenders and then a back post curler through a bunch of traffic. That happened in the 57th minute. It was just, when you think of the classic Salah goal, it's that, that back post curler with his left foot. It's, it's a beautiful thing to see. And then the second goal was one of, but not the best, but one of the best counterattacks I have ever seen. It was a corner to West Ham. The ball scooted out, fell to Trent. He pushed it out of the box. And then in one of his first touches, sent the ball cross field to Shakiri, and the ball landed just past the halfway. Plenty of running lane for Shakiri. Shakiri doesn't even take a first touch. He just booms it to Salah, who is the front runner on this counterattack. And it lands right at his feet, just inside the box. Perfect first touch with his weak foot, his right foot, and then slots it away. All in all, the counterattack was like four or five or six touches total, which was insane. It was just, it's a must-see goal if you missed it this past weekend. So at this point, Liverpool is now up 2-0. Third goal came shortly after that. At this point, West Ham was pretty defeated because, to be honest, in this match, they played very well, and it took wonder goals from Liverpool to actually get on the score sheet. They just happened to have it in their bag today. So at this point, when they conceded the third, they just looked a little bit uh, defeated. It was a goal from Wijnaldum, of all people, and assisted by Bobby Firmino. And then late, Craig Dawson pulled one back for West Ham, Final result, 3-1. Notes from this, the note I have is that Salah was just in his best form. His two goals were beautiful. Yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on the match? Well, it showed that Liverpool hasn't entirely lost their ability to be clinical. I, I mean, their finishes were absurd. They had a bunch of chances. In particular, Divock Origi had a ton of chances in the first half. But there were some... Certainly some shining stars in the match. I thought that Shakiri played really well outside of his ridiculous assist. I thought that it, you know his movement and then his vision was was great. I also heard some stat recently that was I thought was absurd, where any game that Tiago starred for Liverpool this year, they haven't won. But I thought he looked incredible. Oh my god, this is something I don't. I, I thought his 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 passes were. What? Listen, I I don't. Maybe I'm the only one in the world that thinks this, but the love for Tiago, at least in the form he's played for Liverpool, makes no sense to me because he's been very mediocre. And and I I don't I don't deny that. However, I think that this match he was back to or closer to the form he was in last year when he was. He was pretty close to being – had Lewandowski not scored the amount of goals he had scored, he, Thiago probably would have been the best player for Bayern last year. Okay, sure. And I think that's – his reputation from Bayern is getting carried over, and he's getting sort of a free pass. But, like, he's been subpar, in my opinion, for Liverpool. And it, it, it's obviously because he has such a high standard. Like, everyone yeah. holds him to such a high standard. But even in this match, like <sighs> – so again, maybe I thought I'm, he had maybe, a lot of crafty passes. So that's the thing. Maybe I'm being a bit of a hypocrite here because a lot of his passes 
didn't connect, but you could see what he was trying to do. And I want to criticize him for that, but I'm going to catch myself because that's exactly what Bruno does for United. And I love it. So, but that's the thing, like every pass, I just can't stand it. Like it's so overblown. The the commentators just, every time he, he makes one pass, it could be just a square ball 10 feet to the right. And they're just drooling over it. They're like, Oh, the way he thumps the ball. It's just, you know, this player is class. I'm like, well, he just passed. I could make that pass. Why are we? Why are whoa, we... whoa, whoa, Trev. Whoa. Hey, I still not... got it in me. I still got it. All in right. Me. All right. Um, um, the last thing I want to say is, and it, it didn't come into play in this match, but, Liverpool just signed two defensive reinforcements, two center back reinforcements. One Ben Davies from Brentford, maybe, and no. then the other. Oh, oh, which where is he from? Preston. Uh, yeah, maybe that's right. Uh, regardless, a championship side, unproven at, at the Premier League level, um, and then the second one being Ozan Kabac at Schalke, Schalke. which uh, who who has been their star of the season other than Matthew Hoppy, the American. He's a really good talent. It'll be interesting. And and I think that he will be a, a much bigger value add to Liverpool than Ben Davies. I didn't really understand that, that signing, but you know, it, it remains to be seen whether these moves help them, whether the storm that is 2020, 2021, um, but they certainly gave it their best shot in the, in the market. Um, other notes from this, uh, I do want to take time to give credit to West Ham because, yeah, if you look at the final scoreline, you're like, okay, well, Liverpool handled this with ease. But honestly, West Ham, I thought, competed with them, and they had their moments where they looked dangerous. You know, I don't think the final third, they couldn't get much going as far as legitimate threat. But, you know, in the center of the midfield, they can they could control the game. They could... With Liverpool having, you know, the likes of Thiago and Wijnaldum and um, I can't, oh, Milner started in the midfield. You know, those are experienced guys. Some of them obviously are like world class. I think West West Ham held their own in the middle middle of the pitch. And uh, a guy that I need to give credit to, someone that I actually loved to hate on last year because I thought he was super, you know, overrated. Um, but uh, I've given him some more time and, and watched him closer. And in this match, I thought he was class. Declan Rice, I think he's the real deal. Uh, 22-year-old English defensive midfielder. He he looked good. He controlled that midfield. And um, not only is he good defensively, but his, his forward passes were very decisive. And they generated, they basically kicked off the attacks. And that's really what you want to see from your deepest lying midfielder. So I was impressed by him. You know, he's, you know, a young English guy with all the hype in the world. So it'll be interesting to see what happens this summer. He is going to, there's been a lot of rumors that Chelsea wanted to buy him. I think pretty much any, any team that it needs a defensive midfielder or death at defensive midfielder would be interested in him. But I think his fee is going to be hefty. And yeah. it's going to be interesting to see again this summer is what the financial situation is for people and if they're willing to uh, allocate a hefty fee to a defensive midfield position. But yeah, I thought he was a boss and he's shaping up to be the uh, the leader of that team. Something that actually just came across the transfer wires. Apparently Liverpool is loaning out Minamino to Southampton and agreement is imminent. 
So another interesting move on deadline day. Interesting. I wonder if they think maybe they're pretty confident Judd is coming back soon or something. Yeah. Uh, hmm. All right. Uh, only other thing to know from this match was, did you see that exchange with Milner and Klopp when Milner got <laughs> subbed off? Yeah. So so for the listeners, if you didn't, it didn't catch the game, basically Milner got subbed off probably like the 55th minute, you know, shortly after the second half started and he was clearly pissed off. He was getting subbed off and made a, you know, he had no problem confronting Klopp. I mean, they were face to face. He wasn't, you know, yelling at him, but he was basically saying Klopp, like I disapprove of this decision. I'm frustrated. And Klopp was like, don't worry. Obviously we don't know what he says, but he looked like he's like, Oh, don't worry. Just trust me. Like this is what's needed. Curtis Jones went on for Milner. And then within two minutes, Curtis Jones got the assist for the first goal of the game and the camera then cut to Milner who was running up, cracking up and pushing Klopp being like, Haha, you knew what you were doing. Yeah. All right, cool. So that's going to do it for the, the deep, the deeper dives of the matches, but there were some other notable results. So I'm going to rip through them quickly. So let's start with a pretty significant upset. We got Newcastle, beating Everton 2-0 with two goals from Callum Wilson. So other thing to note on this, say Maximum returned, came on as a sub, and honestly, Newcastle legitimately outplayed Everton this whole match. It wasn't sitting back, getting two ugly goals. They were the better team today, and it was sort of a, a reality check on Everton's, I don't know, high hopes for the season, because Newcastle is a bad team and they looked like a very good team on this day so big win for Newcastle they were crashing towards the relegation zone maybe this can turn turn the momentum around other match worth noting is Manchester City beats Sheffield United 1-0 with a goal by Gabriel Jesus in the ninth minute and uh, yeah more of the same for City another great performance by their defense and another lackluster by their attack they only had 10 shots and five were on target, which is not really what you'd expect out of a city prolific attack. Obviously, part of this can be attributed to Sheffield United's stingy, stingy low block. But I also would think that City of all teams is really well to set up really well to handle low blocks because all their players are very crafty and very good at passing and especially passing in tight areas. So that's kind of what you need with a low block. You need to work in these tight spaces and, and, uh, work the ball around to get an open shot, but you know, regardless, I digress city wins. Always good to keep an eye on city because they could easily run away with the league. Uh, hopefully they don't do that. Next up. I got Aston Villa versus Southampton one nil. Thanks to a goal or sorry, a one nil win for Aston Villa. Thanks to a goal by Ross Barkley. It's a solid win for Villa Southampton. They can be a pesky team. I think we're starting to see their true colors. They've just, ever so slowly been dropping down the table. So maybe not as big of a threat as we thought maybe in the earlier season when they were floating around the top four, still a good team though. And Villa continues their climb up the table last, but not least major upset of the weekend, Leicester title outside dark horse title contenders, Leicester city lose to Leeds three, one, a goal and two assists for Patrick Bamford, Probably the best game he had all season. His goal was a beautiful one-touch finish. Couldn't have hit the ball much better than he did. Leeds really outplayed Leicester 
there wasn't much teeth to Lester's attack all match. Vardy didn't play. Um, it's worth noting, though, Harvey Barnes for Lester. He continued his good form with a goal. That's five goals for him and two assists in the last ten matches. Uh, I think he's he might, you know, throw his name in the hat to join England for Euros. He's got a steep hill to climb, though, because sort of that left wing position is stacked. But he is playing the best of his career, so it's worth uh, calling that out. And uh, another thing to note, so Leicester lose again. When I say again, I mean that of the teams up in that top part of the table, they have, you know, the ones that are considered top four competitors and even title contenders, they by far have the most losses. And we were just talking about a couple episodes ago, if we think of them as legitimate title contenders, legitimate top four, Bones is, uh, you know, he made some very compelling arguments for Leicester saying that, you know, I really think they're the real deal. Good arguments, but I, with my massive brain, called out the fact that Leicester tend to lose games. They can go on very hot streaks, but they can also lose head scratchers. And almost right on cue, they lose to Leeds. So, ugh. And actually, one thing I don't have my notes here is one other upset. Tottenham lost to Brighton. 1-0. No Harry Kane. He is expected to be out for a few weeks. Gareth Bale got the start and did nothing. Brighton honestly looked like just as good, if not the better team. It was a very fair win, and uh, that is not good for Tottenham. This is just such a bizarre season. Hopefully, I really, the last thing I want to happen, like it's been so exciting so far. And if pretty much if you have a team in the top 12, you you're still playing for something. You still have hopes for at least Europe. You know, obviously there's longer shots than others. But uh, my biggest fear at this point is City has just been so consistent. And obviously, as a United fan, I really don't want them to pull away. But I think as anyone that just is a fan of the Premier League, that's that's what could derail the season as far as excitement goes. So I'm just hoping that doesn't happen, which brings up a good time to review the current table. So I'm going to pass it over to Bones because I've been talking too much. Bones, give us an update. What's going on with the table going into these midweek fixtures? So after this weekend, a lot of wild and wacky stuff. So sitting on first, Manchester City with 44, with one game in hand. Sitting in second, Manchester United with 41 points. Liverpool in third at 40 points. Leicester with their drop in points is now sitting at 39. Sitting in fifth, West Ham holding on tight with 35 points. And Tottenham depressingly dropping points, but sitting at 33. They do have a game in hand, although they're being heavily contested by Chelsea and Everton, both also at 33 points. And it's worth noting that Everton has two games in hand. So a lot of good footy to be played, a lot of wacky stuff to be done. I think Trev and I are up for it, and I know you guys are. Oh, yeah. And one more thing to add. There is actually something worth talking about in the bottom of the table. So West Brom and Fulham played each other this past week. This is like the opportunity for them to get an advantage over each other and get three points. They couldn't do it. I think it was 0-0. So one point each doesn't help them at all with getting out of relegation. However, big news is that Brian 
did get that upset win over Tottenham. So now there's actually a pretty significant gap between the last spot in relegation and the, the last safe spot. So between 17th and 18th, there's seven points thanks to the Brighton win. So ugh, that's really bad news for – I mean, we knew Sheffield United was going to get relegated. Yeah. West Brom had like the littlest bit of hope. Uh, it's probably pretty much gone now. And then Fulham uh, – I mean, we've been tooting their horn the whole time, but they gotta they gotta turn it on because they're running out of matches. All right, we gotta jump into immediately. We got match week twenty two games coming in every three days, every two days, whatever. So midweek fixtures, we're just gonna highlight the ones that we're most interested in. So I'm gonna kick it off, and unsurprisingly, my first match I'm gonna be looking forward to is on Tuesday which is, at the time of this podcast, the current day, Manchester United versus Southampton. Obviously, I'm going to be watching this match, but Southampton is a... I think we've downgraded them from a good team to a pesky team, so Mm -hmm. probably should lose this one, but they can also surprise some people. And also, they already met this year, and it required a come-from-behind victory. United went down 2-0, come back to win 3-2 thanks to Cavani. So, uh, yeah, the first match wasn't easy for United, so this one should be interesting. I'd like to think United can handle it, but uh, they're in a tough rut right now after losing to Sheffield and dropping points to Arsenal. That is 100% the marquee match of Tuesday, although one other match that I'm interested in watching is Wolves-Arsenal. One, to see if Arsenal can continue their form. And two, to see if Wolves can turn it around. All right, next match I'm interested in is Burnley versus City. Why? Well, because I'm going to be watching every City match very closely now because of two reasons. One, uh, I, I hate City, and they look like they're favorites to win the league. But also, like I just like I just ranted about, I don't want them running away with the league. So hopefully I can witness them drop some points. Burnley... Honestly, has been on a tough stretch. As we mentioned earlier, Liverpool, then Aston Villa, then Chelsea, now City. Murderers row. The thing is, City, their defense is phenomenal. Their their attack still hasn't hit their hit their form yet. And if there's anything Burnley can do, it's 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 play organized defense. So it's a long shot, but maybe they can uh, pull off some upset here. Anything else you're interested in, Bones? Moving on to Wednesday, I'm liking Aston Villa West Ham because this has huge implications for the middle of the table. I mean, both are trying to fight for European, uh, for Europa League spots, and I think this this is a really pivotal moment in their in their season uh, in determining who sinks and swims. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, this is this is huge for that. I think, I I don't I don't think it's realistic to think that West Ham can really try to push for the top four. Um, obviously, like you mentioned, Europa League is there. I think Villa still has an outside chance. They have a few games in hand, and I mean, they're they're now a few games back from COVID. Let's see if they can keep the momentum going. I, th- you know, they they could make a late push for the top four if, you know, after we've seen the likes of Leicester and Tottenham drop points. So yeah, this should be a good match. West Ham is, you know, they want to prove that they're, they can compete with the the big dogs. Villa 
obviously is in the same position. So we'll see. I think that's it for me on Wednesday matches, the, the Burnley mm-hmm. city and Villa West Ham. So obviously the, the marquee matchup of the, the midweek fixtures comes on Thursday. It's the only match on Thursday. It will probably be must watch, but might be a little boring in the end. It's Tottenham versus Chelsea. Basically, these two teams are sort of trending in opposite directions. Tottenham is definitely on the downslope. No Harry Kane, just lost to Brighton. What's going to happen? They need to kind of right the ship. And then Chelsea under Tuchel, obviously uh, drew their first match under Tuchel, but won the second. The second match, they looked so much better, especially attacking-wise, which has been an issue for them all season. So it'd be, I mean, it's. I'm just interested to see who starts for Chelsea, what formation they go with. I hope they stick with the same formation because it's been pretty interesting to watch. And I, you know, Tuchel's still filling out his personnel, but, you know, he gets three, four, five matches underneath his belt. We're probably going to start to see his, his ideal starting 11. Which... Yeah, it'll just be interesting to see um, how his starting 11 selections continue to take shape. And I don't know if it's going to be similar to what he rolled out this past week, but um, I, I'm just I'm just kind of looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, it should be interesting. Okay, that's going to do it for us and for episode, I think it's 21. So, if you haven't already, find us on Twitter at 2TouchPod. That's where we'll be posting the updates when episodes go live and when we have additional content like our blog posts. All right, so for Bones, I'm Trevor. Thanks for listening.